0: You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. Our guest today is Dr. Mia Levy, the Director of the Cancer Center at Rush University Medical Center and the System Vice President for Cancer Services at the Rush University System for Health. She is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology and Oncology and a practicing medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast cancer and precision oncology. Her research mission is to develop and disseminate learning cancer systems that deliver data and knowledge-driven clinical decision support across the continuum of cancer care and research. One such system is Russia's Breast Cancer Risk Assessment Program, which is the focus of our talk today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today, Dr. Levy.
1: Thank you, Dan, so much. Such a pleasure to be here.
0: To get us started, can you give us an overview of the Breast Cancer Risk Assessment Program at Rush?
1: The Breast Cancer Risk Assessment Program was launched in March of 2020, and about a week later, the pandemic hit. So we took a little pause and relaunched the program really at full capacity in July of 2020. And the goal of the program is to systematically assess the risk of breast cancer for women who are presenting for breast cancer screening and to offer those patients who qualify the opportunity for supplemental breast cancer screening to improve the breast cancer detection rate. You have to understand that mammography is less sensitive at detecting breast cancer in women who are at high risk for breast cancer. And supplemental screening with either whole breast ultrasound or MRI improves our ability to detect cancer at an early curative stage, which is really the goal of breast cancer screening. The problem is that breast cancer risk assessment is actually pretty complicated. The clinical practice guidelines in breast cancer screening have recommended that we perform routine risk assessment for breast cancer risk for the past several decades, beginning at age 25. However, these risk assessment models are complicated. They require a detailed patient medical and family history, as well as some other biometric features such as body mass index and breast density. And then all of that information is imported into risk calculation tools. You can imagine, given its complexity and the challenges with implementation, these breast cancer risk assessments haven't been broadly implemented in a primary care setting. And as such, many patients are unaware of their breast cancer risk and their subsequent eligibility for supplemental breast cancer screening. So the goal of our program is to address this gap by assessing the risk of breast cancer for every patient that's presenting for screening at the Breast Imaging Center and offering personalized recommendations for supplemental screening where appropriate. Since July of 2020, over 15,000 patients have had their breast cancer risk assessed with this program. And during that time, we found that upwards of 50% of those patients are eligible for either supplemental screening with MRI or automated whole breast ultrasound, also called ABUS. We're also putting all of this together in a learning system concept. The idea behind this is that we wanna learn from the experiences of every patient that's coming through our breast cancer screening program, not just the patients who are participating in clinical trials. In this way, we are optimizing our workflows and our data collection to be able to evaluate the outcomes of the program and continuously improve on our screening guidelines and our workflows in order to optimize the best outcomes for our patients. So it's been an incredibly exciting project to be involved with and one of our first learning system implementations since I joined Rush two years ago.
0: You talked about ABUS. Could you talk about that uh, along with the other two components of the program in each in a little detail?
1: Sure. So let me talk about the program as a whole. So the program consists of three parts. The first is a formal risk assessment. So when a patient presents to the Breast Imaging Center, we have a questionnaire that will assess their history, personal history of breast cancer, their family history, if they've had their gynecologic history, all of the traditional risk factors that go into calculating these risk scores. We then determine if a patient is eligible to have their risk calculated, and we ask them if they want to participate in having their risk assessed. At the end, each patient will have a personalized risk score that also takes into account the breast density that was observed on that screening mammogram that was done on that day. And in the report for that screening study, there will be additional recommendations for additional supplemental screening if appropriate, such as for an MRI or ABUS, which is automated whole breast ultrasound. We started, and this is the second part, which is the personalized guidelines for supplemental screening. And those personalized guidelines include not only patient's eligibility for supplemental screening, which I'll talk about sort of the criteria around that in a minute, but also whether or not patients are found to be at high risk for having a hereditary cancer gene, or if they may benefit from risk-reducing treatments such as risk-reducing medications such as endocrine therapy. So the personalized guideline will make all these recommendations. That's the second part. And then the third portion is for patients who are found to be high risk, we have a a nurse navigator in our clinic who contacts the patients to explain to them what the information in the report means and ask if they have any questions and offers them, where appropriate, a referral to one of our high-risk breast clinics, including to the hereditary genetics clinic for consideration for genetic testing if that's one of the risk factors that's identified. So those are really the three components, assessing a patient's risk, a set of personalized guidelines for supplemental screening, and finally, triaging patients to a high-risk clinic so that they can discuss their risk and the benefits of additional supplemental screening and possibly additional treatments and assessments. You asked the question about ABIS in particular. So the screening guidelines are pretty much divided into a couple of categories. One category is for women who have a personal history of breast cancer, and then the other category is for patients that need their risk assessed, and that's people between the ages of 25 and 75. And then the third category is people who fall out of that risk assessment category, who are either younger than 25 or older than 75. In the group of patients who do qualify to have their risk assessed, those patients who are found to be high risk either because of having a genetic predisposition to breast cancer or due to their risk calculations or prior high-risk lesions such as atypical ductal hyperplasia or atypical lobular hyperplasia, those patients are recommended a supplemental MRI. But for the patients who are found to be normal risk or who decline risk assessment, for those patients, if they are also found to have dense breast tissue, they are also offered a supplemental screening with automated whole breast ultrasound, or ABUS. In particular, women with dense breasts have a lower sensitivity on their mammograms compared to women with normal breast density. And so supplemental ABUS is one of the ways in which we can detect cancers early. It is a non-invasive test, and there's no radiation involved, and it's very well tolerated by patients. And we've had significant uptake of that particular technology since we launched it at the end of 2017. And we've seen a great adoption and have detected an additional three to four breast cancers per thousand patients screened with the ABUS technology and finding very early stage breast cancers, which again is the goal of the program. Our recent increase in MRI recommendations, we don't yet have long-term outcomes on that, but we're looking forward to using our continuous learning system to see we expect even higher rates of cancer detection with that that technology because it's very, very sensitive.
0: I'm curious about the focus of breast density in the program. Can you talk a little bit about why breast density is important and how it's become a new point of focus for providers?
1: So breast density is becoming more and more understood to be a risk factor for breast cancer itself, number one. Number two, it's also a risk factor for failure of mammography So the need to supplement your screening in the presence of dense breasts becomes very important. Breast density is something that decreases with age. And so we'll see high proportions of women in their 30s and 40s with very dense breasts. And then it decreases as women get older. About 50% of women will have dense breast tissue, but that's more like 60% when you're in your 40s and more like 30% when you're in your 70s. It doesn't go down to low numbers, so there's still many 70-year-olds who will benefit from supplemental screening with technologies like ABUS. The technology itself is also very exciting. In the past, ultrasound was done with handheld ultrasound, and there were some challenges with being able to compare previous ultrasounds with the current ultrasound because it was very technician-dependent. The ABUS is an automated breast ultrasound and it has standardized protocol and a standardized sweep over the breast. So it's much easier to compare findings on a previous ABUS to the one you're doing today. So it makes it just like a mammogram, how we often will look to compare the old images. It's a really helpful and one of the key strategies that breast imagers use for detecting changes in the breast is what it looked like before the previous year's exam.
0: Looking at, again, kind of a a broad view of the program, the three components that you talked about, it comprises a learning system. I think you had touched on that right at the beginning of our talk today. Can you talk about the uniqueness of this kind of system in healthcare and how Rush came to adopt it?
1: A learning system strives to take clinical guidelines, make a local version of them, and because the guidelines are complicated, and at some point you got to make a local version of them. Implement those guidelines, and then systematically evaluate the impact of that implementation in your program with the idea that you can continuously improve the outcomes. Now, guideline-driven care has been something we've done for many years, but it's been difficult to get at the outcomes for many of these guideline-based programs. And that's because the way we document outcomes in the medical record often is not conducive to being able to extract that information downstream. So one of the key innovations that we did in this program is not only to have a structured way of assessing risk and being able to extract that information for use both in the guideline recommendation as well as for secondary purposes, but also in looking at the outcomes of these programs. Breast imaging often uses a standardized terminology called BI-RADS for classifying the outcomes of breast imaging. This is now structured and has been actually for some time. Breast density is now a structured outcome. When we do a biopsy, we have structured outcomes for the biopsy results. All of these are now allowing us for the first time to be able to do our quality measures in an automated way as opposed to the manual approach to quality assessment that has been done for the last several decades. And so, This is an incredibly exciting time because we, for the first time, have the ability to get real-time analytics out of our programs so that we can adjust the operational challenges that we may have, as well as the quality outcomes that we may have. And we can test various hypotheses of how our guidelines are impacting the cancer detection rate or the callback rate or the positive predictive value of the biopsy for women who are participating in these programs. Finally, we're really starting to look at this from a population health perspective. Typically, medicine works one patient at a time. You may have many patients that you're seeing, but every patient is treated individually. In this system, we're looking at entire populations of patients, understanding their risk, and then managing their risk and making sure that we are optimizing the care of those individuals optimizing their uptake of these risk-reducing strategies so that we can have breast cancers that are detected early and achieve a cure for those patients, which is ultimately the goal of any breast cancer screening program.
0: Was there any technical catalyst or innovation that accelerated the adoption of this learning system for breast cancer?
1: It's been gradual over many decades. The breast imaging world has been early adopters of standardization for a long time. They came up with this BiRad's classification several decades ago and have had quality guidelines and certification processes in their culture for a long time. And that was one of the nituses of really being able to be self-reflective in a program and always wanting to improve. Those quality guidelines, however, were a burden for centers to have to measure every year. And it required a lot of manual labor and was just one of the costs of doing business. Over the years, the radiology community recognized that if they had the discipline to document in a particular way the outcomes of their findings, that they actually could facilitate an automated approach to this as electronic health records have improved, and as tools such as vendor-available risk calculators have become available, all of these things are now coalescing into a moment where a learning system is finally possible in this domain. And I think we have a lot to learn from this successful example in healthcare of how we can do this in other areas. The, the advantage of breast cancer screening is 37 million women will be screened for breast cancer every year in this country. So it's a large, large population. And if we could take something like what we're doing at Rush, do it as a, what we call a reference implementation where we demonstrate the ability to do this and then teach others how to do it. Well, just imagine the power that we're gonna be able to have of being able to evaluate these types of guidelines in a real world environment and see their impact and simulate their impact for a very large population. There's still so many questions that are left unanswered in the optimal way to perform screening for cancer and and breast cancer in particular. There's still a lot of controversy in the guidelines. And if we can develop a system like this at scale, first demonstrating it at our institution that we're able to do it, but then bringing it to others, imagine the power of that transformation.
0: You're leading me into my next question, which is some of the initial takeaways that you've gleaned from the model, or I should say system thus far?
1: It's always exciting when you're like, look what we can measure. Isn't that great? You pat yourself on the back and then someone says, well, what about this? Can you measure that? And and you're like, you know, that is really important. Some of the things that we've learned are that we want to be able to collect many dimensions of a learning system and not just the quality outcomes or the uptake. We also want to understand the patient's experience in the process because screening is something that can be anxiety provoking, having to come back for additional studies. And then there's the lost work, of having to come back and the potential co-payments that patients have to make. So we don't want this to be just about the quality. We want to be able to look at this from a holistic perspective. Now we're starting to look at some of the economic outcomes and the patient burden outcomes with respect to their participation in the program. So you, you, you get a little taste of success and then you want some more. Um, but that's why it's a continuous learning process. We expect that we're going to continue to need to refine the way we do documentation, our workflows, our guidelines in an iterative process. And as new technologies emerge, both for breast imaging approaches, for instance, we're implementing contrast enhanced mammography this month. And that's going to be a new role that we'll have to see as an alternative to MRI. And as we get more and more artificial intelligence opportunities for automated interpretation of either breast density or or finding of lesions, the science and the technology will continue to drive us. It's been an amazing lesson in being agile and being able to iteratively be flexible in learning from the experiences and the feedback that we get from both patients and their clinicians.
0: Leads me to my next question, which is, what are the questions that have come up? either on an individual basis or maybe more population-wise, if there's any trends coming out from the data about certain populations that are at higher risk than others?
1: Thank you for that question, Dan. I think it's a really important one. We've had a few findings that have been a little surprising. There's a new guideline from the American College of Radiology that was published in 2018 on reclassifying women with a personal history of breast cancer as higher risk and qualifying for supplemental breast MRI. And so we've implemented that program here and we did a simulation of how many of our patients coming through this program of those 15,000 patients, we had about 2,000 who had breast cancer, how many of them would qualify for this supplemental breast MRI compared to those who qualified before? The people who qualified before this guideline was implemented was only about 4%. And that was the patients who had a personal history of a hereditary cancer gene like a BRCA1 or BRCA2 carrier. That was a very small population because many of those people who had breast cancer will get prophylactic mastectomies, and so they're not typically getting screening still. After we implemented the program, which also recommended breast MRI for that population, as well as those who had dense breast tissue and those who were diagnosed with breast cancer before the age of 50, 62% of the patients qualified for supplemental breast MRI. Now, you can imagine where many of these women had breast cancer many years ago, and they're still coming in and getting screening. And suddenly their doctors are trying to explain to them, you now qualify for a breast MRI, even though we've told you you didn't need one for the last five years. And it's raised a lot of questions. So some patients have been like, yes, finally, I've always thought I needed a breast MRI every year. And they're very appreciative of now having their risk assessed and and this recommendation so that insurance will cover the cost. But others are more hesitant, and they want more information. We did not anticipate that it would be such a large number. And as a result, we've had to do a significant amount of outreach to the providers, a lot of education, created materials for the patients to better understand the reasons why these recommendations are changing. So that's one example of some things that we've learned. And we'll see, many of those patients are just now coming up for their six-month MRI. We'll see how much uptake we end up getting for the program. That's one of our outcomes we're measuring. The other thing we were surprised by is we looked at that same population and we looked at the racial differences of who was being recommended supplemental breast MRI. And we found that compared to other populations, Black women had a much lower rate of being recommended supplemental MRI. And it was because they had a lower rate of dense breasts. In general, their their breast density over the whole population was lower, and it accounted for why they were being uh, systematically recommended at a lower rate. We then went back at our non-breast cancer patients and found the same trend, that Black women in our population have lower breast density and as such are also not being recommended supplemental breast ultrasound at, at a similar rate this has left us with a lot of questions as to what is the biological reason for this? And is this something we need to be worried about? Or is this just they don't have dense breasts, so mammography should be just fine. So we have a lot of unanswered questions in that particular category that we're looking forward to doing the discovery science portion of in our future work.
0: I know this is new. And there's, as you talked about before, a lot of excitement and so many different directions you could go in terms of the next steps for the system. But I'm curious to know about what you think would be the next evolution of this program. I don't have a specific time frame in mind, but what do you see as being kind of the next steps outside of what you've already talked about?
1: As I mentioned before, I like to think of this as a reference implementation. And we still have a lot to do because we've only been live since July. And so there's still a lot of data to be collected and a lot of outcomes to learn from the program and iterative refinement to go. But I would like to think of this as a reference implementation that we can then share with other medical centers, explain our know-how and really begin to think about whether or not we can look at data collaboratives that will allow us to answer bigger scale questions across the country at sites that are able to develop and implement systems the way we've done, which should be possible. I mean, all these tools are readily available. Don't get me wrong, the implementation requires a lot of commitment and a well-coordinated team that's willing to work together. But if we can share that know-how and begin to bring our data together, my hope would be that we can really create a national-level learning system for breast cancer screening at a scale we've never been able to achieve before.
0: Offhand, you know, other institutions are doing this sort of breast cancer risk assessment, or is Rush one of the pioneering institutions that's doing it?
1: No, there's definitely other programs that are doing risk assessment, whether they're using the same tools that we're using or other tools. We are the only one that's implemented it quite in this way in the learning system process, but I believe that many institutions would be able to partner with us if given the right resources and the right cultural motivation to do so. It's not a barrier that would be too high for people to scale.
0: So I wanna wrap up our conversation today and talk about the Rubschlager building, which is gonna open in two years in 2023. And for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the Rubschlager building, it's going to be a destination center for neurosciences and cancer care. How do you see that building impacting the breast cancer risk assessment program?
1: Well, Dan, I'm incredibly excited about this new building. As you can imagine, having a place where we can co-locate all of our programs together is incredibly impactful. In that new building will be a new breast center where we will have our uh, breast imaging technology as well as our breast cancer providers all in the same floor. This means that for our patients who are at higher risk, who are seeing a breast cancer provider they will be able to get their imaging at that same location. And I can't tell you how powerful it is as a provider to just be able to walk down the hall and and tap on the shoulder of your friendly radiologist and say, you know, can we look at these images together? It's really transformative in communication and in, in care coordination and also facilitates the science and communication. So that particular innovation of the Breast Center is gonna be one of the key flagstone pieces of our program.
0: Dr. Levy, thank you so much for our conversation today and I enjoyed learning about the Breast Cancer Risk Assessment Program. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me, Dan.